Hello and welcome to the ninth episode of Behind the Brand. I'm your host, Amelia Kajeri, and we are ready to take you on another exciting journey into the origin and evolution of an iconic global brand. So today we'll be delving into the swoosh-clad world of Nike, the sports behemoth that has been making athletes faster, higher, and stronger for more than half a century in different sports, for example, football, basketball, baseball, American football, and more and more. So in today's episode, we'll lace up our running shoes like he likes us and spring back in time to explore the compelling story of how a young man with a crazy idea feel like partners with his former track and field coach, the legendary of course, Bill Bowerman, to change the face of athletic footwear forever. So most of you may not know Bill Bowerman, but uh, today you're gonna know him. And most of you maybe don't know Phil Light, but after listening to this podcast, you might know him. From selling Japanese shoes out of a car boot to building a brand that today defines athletic excellence, Nike's story is as fascinating as the athletes it serves. So together we'll uncover the gripping tale of Nike's inspiring journey to Japan, his audacious negotiations with Onitsuka or today's ASICS, and the birth of Blue Ribbon Sports or today's Nike. We'll discover how a buffalo iron inspired a revolutionary shoe design and how the Just Do It Spirit was born. We'll navigate through the trials and tribulations, the moment of despair and the breakthroughs that eventually led to the creation of brand that is now a staple in every athlete's wardrobe. So get ready for a high-speed adrenaline-filled journey that's full of surprises, innovations, and radical ideas. So let's uncover the sprint, tenacity, and relentless innovation that is Nike. Let's get it started. So we go back in time, feel light and influential figure in the world of sports apparel, is perhaps best known as the co-founder of Nike. His journey from a young man with a radical idea to pioneer of a global sportsman is truly, truly remarkable. Born on February 24, 1938 in Portland, Oregon, Knight grew up in a supportive, hard-working family. His father, William Knight, was a publisher at the Oregon Journal. This environment nurtured Knight's entrepreneurial spirit from a young age as a teenager. As a teenager, Knight displayed an innate passion for sports. He was especially running. He would run track at Cleveland High School and continue this pursuit until the college. So Knight attended the University of Oregon, where he earned a degree in journalism in 1959. And at that time, the University of Oregon, he ran middle distance events under coach Bill Bowerman, which we mentioned before. Bill Bowerman was a former Olympian and a man who would later become instrumental in Knight's career. Bowerman was an innovative coach with a knack of improving athletic equipment. His philosophy of creating the best conditions for his athletes to excel resonated with Knight, which was pretty weird. The partnership between Knight and Bowerman began on the University of Oregon's Hayward Field. But the impact of the meeting would eventually extend far beyond the track. Bowerman was a mentor to Knight, both on and off the field. The relationship was founded on mutual respect and shared ambition, laying the groundwork for a future business partnership. Upon graduation, Knight enrolled at Stanford Graduate School of Business. Here he wrote a term paper that would foreshadow his future enterprise. He proposed that the manufacturing of running shoes could be shifted from Germany to Japan, similar to how Japanese motorcycles had undercut European models. After earning his Master's of Business Administration, or AKA MBA, in 1962, 1962, 
Knight set off on a trip around the world with a small budget from his parents, a journey that would lead him to the opportunity he had theorized in his term paper. His journey was not easy for going around the world as he, uh, he put his life savings into going to that around the world trip and it was pretty risky as on that time there was not very developed airplanes and it was pretty risky flying by planes which made his parents to worry about what's going to happen for him in Japan. But while he was in Japan, Knight visited the Onitsuka Tiger Company, a manufacturer of athletic shoes, impressed by the quality of affordability of the shoes, and feeling like he saw an opportunity for importing these shoes into the American market. He made a cold pitch to the executives of Onitsuka, presenting himself as a representative of an American distributor called Blue Ribbon Sports. So... You know, that Blue Ribbon Sports didn't exist on that time. He just went and lied to them. Of course, he went and lied to them and told them that there is a company named Blue Ribbon Sports, a distribution rights for Tiger Shoes in the United States. And he wanted, like, franchising of Onitsuka Tiger Shoes in the United States. While he was returning to Oregon, Knight sent the shoes to Bowerman while he got the franchising. So basically, if you want more information on these, you could check out Phil Knight's book, Shoe Dog, which is pretty... Inspirational and amazing. But I'm going to explain more. So basically, after he went to get the franchise for Blue Ribbon Sports, after some approaches, he finally approached the main person, the CEO of the company, Onitsuka. And later on, he just mentioned Blue Ribbon Sports as a company. He made the company up like in 10 seconds without even like thinking. And... He just told them that I have this company and, uh, and I'm uh, shoe, I'm sell shoes. I like that. I really like your shoes. So the company, after a few days, accepted him. And he went back to the United States, of course, to get the shipping. But the shipping from Japan to the United States on that time to Oregon would take a pretty much time. It would take months to come. And he had invested a lot of money. So his strategy was that borrow a lot of money, buy a lot of shoes. And then after that, sell those shoes, make more profit, and then borrow more money and buy more shoes. So it was his strategy like that at the start. But when he was coming back to the United States, Bill Bowerman saw a bigger opportunity. Instead of just selling the shoes, he proposed a partnership to distribute the Japanese running shoes together in the United States. Which this was the beginning of their enterprise with $500 from each of them. They ordered 300 pairs of shoes in 1964 and Blue Ribbon Sports, or BRS, the precursor to Nike was born. So Blue Ribbon Sports was first Nike, but I mean, Nike, the idea was not invented at that time. It was just a company. Bowerman's brilliance was in tinkering with the design of the shoes to make them lighter and more efficient for running. So he tried every kind of strategy with the shoes on night. And Knight on the other underhand brought a knack of numbers and an innovative marketing strategy to the table. Their partnership, while based on shared passion and trust, also benefited from the complementary skills they brought to the business. In the early days of the venture, Knight sold the imported shoes out of the trunk of his car at track meets across the Pacific Northwest. At the same time, Bowerman uses athletes, guinea pigs, to test his innovative shoe modifications and word of their superior quality quickly spread. So Knight and Bowerman tried a lot of the stra strategies to making their shoes. One of those was crazy from Bill Bowerman, which he put the skin of the fish on the shoe to try out. And I mean, the smell stinks. Of course, everybody knows. And 
it was Knight's idea that the smell stinks and it was not a good idea. So Bill Barman and Knight didn't give up and they started uh, finding more solutions for better products and lighter. Finn Knight's journey to Japan was not just a literal geographical exploration, but also at a metaphorical adventure into the unknown realms of business. Armed with nothing more than his initiation and a vision, Knight booked a one-way ticket to Japan after graduating in 1962. He traveled across the island country trying to understand his culture, business practices, and manufacturing capabilities. So, returning to Oregon, Knight evaded like we're going back, we're going back, and we're coming back. When he was coming back, the, he waited for months, as I said, and with a mix of excitement and anxiety, he's finally the tiger shoes from Onisaka was arriving in Oregon. Now, when he got the shoes, what he had to do? Of course, he had to sell them, and he knew just the person who could help him, his former coach, Bill Bowerman. In the following years, uh, Knight and Bowerman would face numerous challenges, from legal battles with Onisaka over distribution rights to financial strugglers as they tried to expand their business. There was so many problems to access the quality product, which there were a lot of bad quality products between the Tiger shoes which arrived, and it made a bad split between the two companies. So he decided to take place of an order of 12 pairs of Onisaga Tigers, the company's flagship running shoe intending to demonstrate the market potential to Onisaka and convince them of the viability of an exclusive distribution agreement. Now, with Bowerman joining as a co-founder, Knight and Bowerman began by selling tigers out of Knight's car at the track meets. So near to the tracks, every track they saw, they went there and they were like, oh, we got the tiger shoes, you want to buy them for a cheap price? And the success of the first order led to another and then another as sales increased, as I told you, the strategy, and they get more sales, more sales, and more sales. But after months of negotiations and a growing track record of successful sales, Knight and Bowerman were finally granted exclusive distribution rights to Tiger Shoes in the United States in 1964. So they got the rights to sell the shoes rather than just buying and selling, buying and selling. They had an actual franchise. So the exclusive distribution deal was a pivotal moment for Blue Ribbon Sports. It was not just having about a product to sell, it was about being recognized as a legitimate player in the athletic shoe market of the United States. From that point forward, Knight and Bowerman worked tirelessly to expand their business. With time, Blue Ribbon Sports grew exponentially, fueled with the popularity of Tiger Shoes and the rise of the jogging trend in the United States. But the true turning point came in the early 70s, when a falling out with Onisaka led Knight and Bowerman to create their own line of athletic shoes. They chose the name Nike after the Greek goddess of victory and rest in history. So you might all think, oh, where the Nike comes? And when you Google it up, it's just a logo of Nike. But it was from a Greek goddess after uh, Phil Knight visited Egypt and Greece, as he was explaining it in his book. Knight, who had established Blue Ribbon Sports on the principle of good faith and mutual benefit, felt increasingly betrayed. Tensions reached a boiling point when he discovered that Onisaka was attempting to circumvent Blue Ribbon Sports by negotiating with other United States distributors. So Knight realized that his reliance on Onitsaka was a strategy of vulnerability and that he needed to take decisive action to protect his business. So Bowerman had been working on improving the Tiger design. They sent designs and designs and no answer from Onitsaka Japan. 
He experimented with different materials and designs, as I told you, like the, step, uh, the skin of fish. They tried to seek to make a new shoe. And the tipping point came in 1971, when Knight learned about Onisaka's plans to end their distribution deal. So it was over. No more f finding ways to send designs to Onisaka for tire shoes to make them more. And it was on that time that they splitted ways. Nike or Blue Ribbon Sports parted ways with Onisaka or Onisaka, today's ASICS. The first Nike shoe was incorporated many of Bowerman's innovative design ideas. The most significant being the waffle sole for better traction. The, the creation of this sole is now a legendary story in Nike lore. So, as you know, under the old Nike shoes, it had like a waffle, waffle pattern under a shoe. So how did Bill Bowerman get this idea? Well, it's pretty interesting. One day, he was when he was making waffles on his waffle iron, he was talking on Phil Knight on the phone about his new idea and crazy idea. And literally, his wife said that, well, don't forget to make the waffles go like, I mean, don't make the waffles go too bad because you're keeping them a lot on the waffle iron. And it was on that time and he was like, oh, the waffle irons, the patterns look good. So what do I do? He just took a, uh, he just took a shoe and just put it as I know. He put it on the iron waffle. And it was on that time that Nike's debut came in 1972 at the U.S. track and field trials in Eugene, Oregon, which was a design of the first ever American-built running shoe with a waffle iron under it. It was so weird. Nike, shoe imme uh, Nike shoes immediately created a buzz because it was light and it was a new design of fashion. Athletes were excited about the shoe that could potentially enhance their performance and consumers were attracted to the brand's novelty and the ethos it stood for. The transition from distributor to manufacturer was fraught with challenges, a lot of challenges, which was not easy. The birth of Nike was indeed a bold and risky move by Knight and Bowerman, but it was also a logical progression of their journey as they made a good tip point by making a humble new idea from a small kitchen in a Bowerman's house to making an ideal, iconic design of running track shoe. So, Bill Bowerman's first attempt at improving the running shoe involved importing high-quality shoes from abroad, which were far superior to those available in the United States. While this endeavor was successful, it was not enough for Bowerman, who sought not just improvement, but revolution. His quest for groundbreaking design culminated in a Eruka, in an Eruka moment that came in the most unassuming of settings. His kitchen, of course. His kitchen while he was making the waffles for breakfast one day and realized the waffle iron. And as Nike grew, its production process became more sophisticated. Nike expanded its product line, introducing different models of the waffle shoe to cater to various sports and athlete needs. Despite these changes, the waffle shoe's core features, its lightness and superior grip remained the cornerstone of Nike's design philosophy. Over the years, Nike has continued to innovate and evolve its product offering to better ones, Nike Jordan, Nike Air Max, and more and more. During the time uh, between the late 70s and early 80s, Nike was on upswing. The waffle shoe had set the stage for a brand's exponential growth, and it was on a decline. As the shoe gained popularity among the athletes and fitness enthusiasts, 
and demand surge. This led to rapid increase in sales and profitability. But the design was becoming old. So they started introducing new shoe designs and apparel that cater to a variety of sports and fitness activities. Not just only track and run, but they expanded into tennis and basketball to running and even casual wear. Nike was intent on capturing as much of the market as possible. They were trying to expand from only athletes wearing shoes to more people wearing shoes. So rather than just athletes, why not people wear it just casually in the streets? And they don't, they don't need to run. It can be just casual. The 2000s, the early 2000s, saw Nike's continue its innovation streak with the introduction of Nike ID, allowing customers to customize their shoes and Nike Plus, a collaborative venture with Apple that combined sports and technology which was pretty cool. This innovation demonstrated Nike's ability to adapt and evolve in a rapidly changing consumer landscape. While Nike's emphasis on sustainability also increased in this era, the brand made efforts to reduce its environmental footprint through sustainable design practices and launched the Ruse as Shoe program, which was recycling old athletic shoes into new sports surfaces, which is still working these days if you go to a Nike shop. Phil Knight and Bill Barman's journey together ended with Bill Barman sadly passing in 1999 yet the impact they made together in the sporting world remains unrivaled their innovation and tenacity have turned nike into an enduring global brand today phil light the surviving founder of the extraordinary venture has taken a step back from the daily workings of the company but his influence on nike still remains in denimo he still has a lot of shares on the company and he still owns more than 70 percent of the company Knight resigned as a CEO of Nike in 2004 and stepped down as the chairman of the board in 2016. However, he remains associated with the company as chairman emeritus, a position allowing him to anticipate meetings but without a vote. He published a memoir in 2016, Shoe Dog, which we talked about, detailing the journey of his Nike, which I really recommend to read it. And events. And it was, and today's estimated of around $50 billion dollars of worth of Knight's uh, shares in Nike, which is a lot, $50 billion. In his honor, Nike established the Bill Barman series of running shoes. Furthermore, the Barman Track Club, sponsored by Nike, is a testament to his lasting impact on track and field sports. As for Nike, the multinational corporation continues to be a leader in the global sports working market, constantly innovating and expanding. The company's emphasis on digital marketing and e-commerce has allowed it to navigate the challenges posed by the COVID-19 pandemic and continue to thrive despite temporary store closure and disruptive supply chains. In 2020, Nike unveiled its Move to Zero initiative, a journey towards zero carbon and zero waste to help protect the future of sports. It's a very good sustainability campaign to gain and attract more customers. Recently, Nike has been exploring digital initiatives such as virtual workout sessions and digital fashion in the form of NFTs, which is pretty cool, and showing its readiness to embrace new technology tricks. Under today, current CEO John Donahoe, I'm not sure, John Donahoe, Nike is striving to create a culture of inclusivity, accountability, and empowerment. The company is facing the future with a commitment to digital transformation, sustainability, and innovation building on the legacy left by Phil Knight and Bill Barman. From the humble beginnings of Blue Ribbon Sports to becoming a global sports for giant, Nike's journey has been nothing short of remarkable as we have seen. The company faced numerous challenges along the way, but with a combination of strategy acumen, product innovation, and culture and impact, it has cemented its place in history 
Phil Knight and Bill Bowerman's vision and relentless pursuit of progress has truly created a brand that goes far beyond its just juice. This podcast is not capable of recording all everything happened during the Nike time. I just did too long because it's a long, big journey. We just try to emphasize and synthesize the most important points of what happened to Nike that they became today's multinational company. Now, as a long-lasting legacy, we're going to now listen to an interview of Phil Knight, which he says nobody could foresee Nike's success as he talks about the Nike idea in the first place. And it is pretty amazing if you could like to listen to it. It's two minutes and we're going to listen to it. When you first started the company in, I guess, 1962, around then, mm -hmm. you knew nothing about shoe design. You didn't know a lot about management and you didn't have any money. So today the company is now worth roughly a market capitalization of about $100 billion, revenues of about $30 billion, 62,000 employees. Did you ever imagine when you first started this company so in the early 60s that it could ever be what it became? Uh, sometimes when I get that question, I say, we're exactly on plan. <laughs> but with you, I can't be a smart ass. <laughs> but you mean that wasn't an original question? I thought that was the first person ever asked that. Okay. No, but it's, uh, yeah, it's been uh, a ride that uh, really nobody could foresee that uh, when we started out, the total uh, branded athletic shoe sales in the United States were about $2 billion. So last year we did nine. And so uh, based on the original year, we're 450% market share. Uh, so it's, uh, you know, we took advantage of uh, the running boom, which became a jogging boom, which became a fitness boom. And uh, we've benefited from all of that. Would you say the company benefited more from being a good marketing company or a good technology company? In other words, having a better product or having better marketing or a combination of both? Well, what oh, I've always said is we're a marketing company and the product is our most important marketing tool. And the skill set that you brought to it, what would you say the skill set was that you brought? Was it great intellect, great drive, great uh, leadership? What would you say? All it of was? that. All of that <laughs> in, equal, in equal amounts. No. I, I, if there's one thing, it's been uh, I've been pretty good at evaluating people. And, uh, and that was one of the things that I wanted to get through and I hope did come through in the book was uh, how valuable those early uh, uh, you know, partners were, the kind of my fellow employees, my teammates. Uh, they were uh, they were terrific. And, Speaking uh, of that book, here yeah, it is. Yeah. Now, shoe dog. Now, I must confess, I didn't when I before I read the book, I didn't know what a shoe dog was. For those who are watching, what is a shoe dog? Well, in 25 words or less, a shoe dog is somebody that really loves shoes, and uh, that was me. That uh, that I was a runner. Uh, there's no such thing as a ball in the mile. That all you really care about are the shoes, and uh, so that became important to me, and uh, it's been with me ever since. Now, you're from Oregon. Yep. And uh, I think I read that the first uh, fossil we have of a shoe that ever existed is 9,000 years old, and it was in came from Oregon. So That's do you right. take that as a special sign that it was designed for you to start this company in Oregon? <laughs> well, I haven't really thought of it that way, but uh, I'll take it. Okay. <laughs> so, dear listeners, after you watch a video, uh, after you listen to the video exactly like the last episode we had, we're going to be having another interview uh, with another guy. Today we are interviewing Simon. Simon is with us today, which we're going to ask him questions about Nike. So how are you, Simon? How are you doing? Oh, we're good. Thanks for asking. Um, and thanks for having me to the podcast. I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're really welcome. You're really welcome. It's a pleasure for us to have you. So Simon, fast. Let's go fast. Let's see. 
Uh, do you know about Nike? I mean, you know about Nike, no? How much you know about Nike? Yeah, of course I know about Nike. I mean, American Corporation, multinational. I think everyone who has ever purchased like sports clothing in general has heard about them. Oh, well, well, well. And like, I mean, do you have Nike clothes and stuff in generally? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, in general, most of my sports clothing that I wear, when I do wear them, um, it's Nike, yeah. Actually, how much would you like the quality? How much would you like the quality? I think, well, not that I have many points of reference. I think the other brand I bought from, I mean, I do like the quality. I mean, in terms of exercising, I do like it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Perfect, perfect. I mean, we are uh, sorry, we're just having a little bit of delay, but it's, I mean, normal. It's, there's no problem with it. Everybody understands there's like sometimes the problems with it, but there's no problem with that. Well, that's pretty perfect. Uh, my next question is this, like, uh, would you prefer Nike or like you would prefer other sporting brands? Like, what's your preferred sporting brand rather than Nike? Like, would you really prefer Nike 100% or not? You would prefer like other sports? That's interesting. Actually, I would prefer Nike, but there's not really any measure of why I would. I think that's interesting how like the brand works. Um, how you buy a specific uh, brand of just because of the, uh, I guess maybe the symbol is associated with it um, and the prestige. Like Nike, I would buy mostly because I have bought from them before. I like their products. And yeah, I mean, I have no reason to switch really. Oh, oh, perfect, perfect. Uh, like, I mean, how much uh, you think that, uh, I mean, it's just a, basically a basic question I'm going to ask. Would you consider Nike as like an um, economy brand or like as a premium brand because of its pricing and stuff? Like, do you think the prices on Nike are fair? I mean, based on the pricing of the products, what do you think about them? Do you think it's like a premium brand or is it like a normal like economy brand? sportswear economy brand like new balance like adidas like something like that i mean but you prefer it as a premium um, product i mean i think they do have a pretty balanced um portfolio in terms of economy and premium products i mean for example i would say the shoes actually um i would say they're more expensive in general but i guess that's the part of the round again um I mean, yeah. they have that because they have that power yeah or in terms of like pants uh, um, and shirts, I would say they're pretty, maybe not economy, because I would refer, I guess, to low quality, low price, but maybe just more in general balanced um, and affordable. So they have a general balanced product portfolio. That's perfect. That's mm -hmm. perfect to hear. I mean, from a marketing perspective, yeah, today we learned something new that that's from a marketing perspective rather than just a general perspective. That's really perfect to be having. I didn't know that. It's a new knowledge for me. And Simon, my next question is this. So like, have you ever read the book Shoe Dike by Phil Light, which is on the story of Nike and the origins of Nike? Mm, no, actually, what is it about? Oh, it's about the biography of Nike founder Phil Light, which we mentioned in our podcast. So, I mean, as soon as this podcast is going to be published, uh, you're going to listen to it. So that's going to be perfect. It's going to be perfect. I mean, it's going to be a perfect opportunity. It's not that long. I mean... Podcasts are 25 minutes, but they're perfect. I, I'm not going to take more of your time and not take more of the listeners, but thanks a lot, Simon, for coming in and giving us some marketing perspective analysis, and I really appreciate it. I hope I could bring you back again on our future episodes. I 
I really appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Simon. Of course, thank you for bringing me in. Thank you for joining me. Fun. So in today's episode, we have traced the trajectory of Nike from its inception as a daring idea in the minds of two visionary individuals, Finn Light and Bill Barman, to its evolution into a global powerhouse in the world of sportswear. Nike's journey is more than a story of commercial success. It's a testament to innovation, resilience, perspiration, and unwavering belief in the power of sport to transform lives. We have seen how the combination of Nike's business acumen and Bowerman's technical inequity laid the foundation for a brand that is globally recognized today. The pair navigated the turbulent waters of starting a new business, including the parade break with Onisaka and the legal battles that followed. They moved from selling shoes out of Nike's car boot to making more and more shops around the world and the United States. The company has weathered numerous challenges and controversies over the years, but it has emerged stronger each time. As we bring this episode to a close, we reflect on the legacies of Bill Finlight and Bill Bowerman. Their relentless drive and refusal to accept the status quo have indelibly marked Nike and continue to inspire the company's path today. The story of Nike doesn't end here. As a brand continues to grow and innovate, we can't wait to see where its journey goes next. But for now, we hope to we hope that this deep dive into the origins of Nike inspired you. We're happy that we did this. We're happy that we entertained you. We're sorry that we couldn't make it fully because it would be so long. It would be around an hour. And if you've enjoyed this episode of Behind the Brand, there's plenty more where this came from. They have a fascinating lineup of brands to explore in the coming weeks. And we had them before. If you haven't listened to them, go back and listen. So make sure to follow or subscribe to the Behind the Brand on your preferred podcast platform, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Overcast, CastBox, Google Podcasts, and of course, Amazon Music. So join us on this journey into the exciting world of brands and their fascinating stories. Until next time, keep listening, keep exploring, and keep being inspired. I hope to see you soon for another tale from behind the scenes of another extraordinary brand, an amazing brand, and of course, I'm not going to tell you what we have for another episode. But always stay curious and don't forget to follow and and, uh, share us with your friends or families because your, uh, your support makes this podcast move on through and make more episodes. Thanks a lot. I'm your host, Amir Ghajari, and I see you soon.